Hey, Rachel, what's Devil Dinosaur's deal? Um, he's a bright red, super smart, gender fluid mutant dinosaur from Earth 78411, Miles. I really don't see what's so complicated about this. 78411? I thought he was just from prehistoric Earth 616. Well, he was originally, or at least Jack Kirby intended him to be. There's some amazingly dubious science involved. I mean, in Devil Dinosaur number one, Kirby straight up claimed, and I quote, After all, just where the dinosaur met his end and where man first stood reasonably erect is still shrouded in mystery. That's... That's not true at all. I know, but it's a moot point, actually, because in Fallen Angels, it turns out that the Valley of the Flame is another world altogether. So how'd he end up in the 616? Well, Fallen Angels, obviously. And later on, he showed up in the Excalibur Lighthouse and, uh, once Jennifer Kale's apartment. That sounds like a tight fit. Yeah, Ghost Rider had to keep him from destroying New York, and then Dee Dee and Moon Boy were hypnotized into joining the Circus of Crime. So pretty standard Marvel rite of passage. True. Anyway, after that, they pretty much permanently relocated to the Savage Land. So Fallen Angels was Devil Dinosaur's first contact with mainstream Marvel. Not quite. See, back in the 70s, he crossed over with a licensed character who got dumped in the Valley of the Flame for a while after a brush with Hank Pym. Who? Come on, man. We're talking about a giant, hyper-intelligent dinosaur. Who do you think he's going to team up with? Sauron? Miles, Sauron is a dick. No one teams up with Sauron. Anyway, think bigger. You don't mean... Godzilla. What?! Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 77 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. You guys, Fallen Angels. We are on 1987 miniseries Fallen Angels, and I should say, Fallen Angels is not technically an X-Book. Remember way, way back in the beginning when we clarified our definition of X-Men comics? That definition included series that overlap significantly with X-Men that we just really like? This is one of those. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, like, it's about mutants as a concept, and the cast are mostly mutants, and a lot of the cast comes from X-Books, so we're still... It's still not an X-series. I mean, this is an episode that I'm willing to file firmly in the self-indulgence drawer. Yes, self-indulgence and the indulgence of all of our listeners, because they're going to love it. Because Fallen Angels is awesome. Fallen Angels is awesome, but we found when we were looking it up online that a lot of critics seem to disagree with us, and we think that it's really unfortunate that so many critics are just objectively wrong. Yeah, I mean, they can have whatever opinions they want, but I will fight them. So, let's talk a little bit about the origin of this series. This is written by Joe Duffy, and Joe Duffy, like a lot of the writers of the era, she was a letter hack who ended up working in Marvel editorial and then writing. She was, I think, best known for a run on Power Man and Iron Fist, which is also where she first teamed up with Carrie Gamble, who drew about half of Fallen Angels. Yeah, I think issues uh, 1, 2, 4, and 7 were Carrie Gamble, and the rest were villain artists. So... I haven't actually read any of Duffy's other work, but I love her on Fallen Angels. And the reason I love her, I mean, this is a weird series pacing and action-wise. Not a lot actually happens in it. It's not a very conflict-intensive series in the ways that miniseries tend to be. Yeah, it's really more of a a hangout book, I guess. It's really all about the characters. I mean, there is an ongoing plot. There are a couple of mysteries that are resolved over the course of the series. But really, it's just folks hanging out and bouncing off each other and being teenagers. It's a character study. And pacing-wise, actually, what it reminds me of most is a really, really good BBC miniseries. Oh, man, now I want to see exactly that. Right? Sort of mid to low budget, because you could do that. It's actually got one of the same supernatural premises as, you know, a really good low budget BBC miniseries, namely Neverwhere. It's got the same teleportation mechanic. Oh, right, between Ariel and Dor. And we'll get to that more later. 
so yeah, more about this series. It was actually originally solicited as Misfits, which is also a cool name, but Fallen Angels just, I don't know, sounds cooler, I guess. Misfits is probably a more literal name. Yeah. Character-wise, it's very strange because we have some very well-known characters like, you know, Sunspot, and then we have some who are new to the series, some who are really obscure we haven't seen in a while. Yeah, the lineup of the series and of the team is a pretty even mix of established characters who are parts of existing teams, minor characters who've mostly appeared in the background, and new original characters. And that's a good blend. I mean, that actually kind of reminds me of the blend you look for for writers when you're putting together an anthology in terms of prominence and visibility. But yeah, it was used as a way of introducing some new characters to the Marvel Universe who unfortunately didn't stick around because they are some of my favorites in the series. But we'll get to those in the moment. For now, I think let's just dive into the story. This starts out directly from New Mutants. Now, you may remember the last New Mutants episode that we did about halfway through Sunspot and Warlock just disappear. And this is where we find out why. And they are, in fact, the most established characters who come into this. And Bobby is the point of view character in the whole series, which I think is fascinating. He's a really interesting choice for this because he's not a character who we see front and center a lot in his own series in New Mutants. Yeah, uh, just about every issue opens with, my name is Roberto DaCosta. I am 14 years old. Dick Grayson, age 12. Uh, oh, God, no, we're not bringing Sorry. Miller's <laughs> Batman in here. The goddamn sunspot. <laughs> so, yeah, a brief recap. I'm sure most of you are familiar if you've heard previous episodes, but Sunspot is one of the new mutants. He's 14 years old. His mutant power is that he absorbs sunlight and can then turn into this sort of super strong form temporarily. And he is the teenageriest teenager of all the teenagers. Yes, he is. He's so melodramatic and everything is so serious and diary only you understand me and it's great. Yeah, he's made of solar power and feelings. Yes. And the other new mutant who's going to be a major character is Warlock. Warlock is a technology-based alien from another world who doesn't fully understand humans but is very enthusiastic and friendly and just wants to help. Well, Warlock is specifically from the technarchy. This is a culture and a species in which the parents and the young are basically locked in a battle to the death for their entire lives. One of the wins the cycle continues. Warlock is a mutant technarch, and his mutation specifically is compassion. It's that he doesn't want to fight his progenitor to the death, so he runs away and joins up with the new mutants instead. Man, I love that mutant power. His mutant power is that he's nice. How great is that? It's pretty great, but it's also a liability, as we will find out later in Fallen Angels. In any case, we start out in what feels like it could have been pulled out of a pretty normal new mutants issue. The new mutants are all off playing soccer. They are specifically, I believe, DaCosta's devils squared off against Ma Guthrie's gorillas. And I love that because DaCosta's devils, like, okay, you know, that's alliterative. It sounds cool. Ma Guthrie's gorillas. So obviously Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, named them after his mom. And I guess he just was having trouble thinking of an animal that started with a hard Gorillas are pretty respectable. Uh, you know, he could have done lots of other things like goats. I've been playing a lot of goat simulators. So that's sort of where I'm going automatically. Oh, I was I was thinking giraffe. But yeah, yours you can better. also play one of those in goat simulator. If you get the tall goat mutator, it's a pastel giraffe. If you've also got the angel goat mutator. I God, I love that game so much. I just want Sam Guthrie to write a letter home to his mom. Hey, mom, you know, life's kind of weird. Uh, Magneto's still the headmaster. We went to space. I named a soccer team after you and also we're gorillas. I feel like Ma Guthrie would be pretty down with that. I think she would. She seems like the kind of parent and raising the kind of family where she periodically compares her children to a zoo. That's probably true. She certainly has enough children. So, and some of them can fly and shit. Yeah. Well, there you go. It works. So, yeah, they're all playing soccer and everything's going fine. And it's being a usual like uh, X-Men slash New Mutants uh, playful opening. And then Cannonball trips and manages to crash into Sunspot, who panics goes into super strong mode and knocks Cannonball into a tree really, really hard. Now, Sunspot's mutation means that he's super strong and less vulnerable than usual when he's powered up. And he 
initially appears to have killed Sam. Now, he hasn't. Sam is basically fine, but the other new mutants freak the hell out. As Magneto points out later, this is, is also, you know, the least popular of the new mutants, the one who has been habitually the most antagonistic, squaring off against the one who's basically everyone's big brother. So they basically tell Roberto to get lost, and he does, horrified at what he's done. What I have done is not the act of a hero. I have never heard of Captain America losing his temper, or the mighty Thor hurting someone he cares about simply because he could not control himself. If I met the great Thomas Magnum of Magnum P.I. today, I would not be able to look him in the face. Oh man, that's a hard thing for Bobby to come to. Everything is so serious all the time for Bobby DaCosta, and I love it. It's such a small change that I really wish instead he'd written, you know, I would not be able to look him in the mustache. <laughs> it kind of messes with the cadence, though, doesn't it? Yeah, but, you know, Magnum P.I. I understand. All about the stash. Yeah, he heads off to talk to Magneto. And unfortunately, Magneto is not around. And instead of comfort, what Bobby finds is his student evaluation that Professor Xavier had written up and left in a folder on the desk, which reads, A most precocious lad, but also, I suspect, deeply troubled. His father, whom Roberto idolized, joined the ranks of the Hellfire Club, the very people responsible for the death of Roberto's girlfriend. Roberto and Sam have grown especially close. My hope is that Sam provides a steadying influence. Roberto's brash self-confidence could easily become arrogance, and from there, lead him inevitably down the road chosen by his father. I mean, Xavier's not wrong, but damn, dude, harsh. Right, this is the report cards as written by a man who literally stays up nights thinking of creative ways to kill his students. And so Bobby, who has, as near as he can tell, almost killed his best friend in the world, Sam, and who he just found out his mentor doesn't trust, his previous mentor anyway, is like, you know what? There's something wrong with me. I need to just get out of here. Yeah, he decides basically, obviously, I will never be a hero. My teammates saw it. They told me to get away. Xavier saw it. He leaves and he leaves the saddest damn letter. Dear everyone, you were all right and I was wrong. It was terrible of me to hurt Sam, who is the best friend I ever had. You are all good friends, and I have been proud to know you all and be one of you. But I do not belong here. I know that now. I am an evil person, and if I stay, I will only end up hurting someone or disgracing you. I saw my report card, so I know Professor Xavier knew this too. Farewell. Please forgive me, and tell Sam I hope his head is better soon. Roberto. Oh god, he's so 14. He is. I don't know why I keep saying his lines all super romantically and smolderingly, yeah, but they kind of fit. On, the thing with Roberto always is that he sounds like a kid who's trying his best to sound as mature as possible. Like you sort of imagine he also periodically goes on, they're not comic books, they're graphic novels. <laughs> I think you're totally Reds. right. Like he's the kid whose notion of adulthood is based again on parents who are largely absentee and or actively evil. And then, you know, Professor Xavier, who's both. And so ultimately what it comes down to is this is the kid whose role model is just Magnum P.I. That's all he's got. I mean, I'm saying you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse. Does he actually ever grow a spectacular mustache? I don't remember that happening and it's really disappointing. Yeah, what's up with that? All right, so Al Ewing is writing the new Avengers series where Sunspot's the leader. Al, I know you listen to the show sometimes. This is my personal request to you. Give Roberto DaCosta a mustache. For the writer to have control, it would have to be like a plot point in the script. Well, I'm just can it saying. Be, can this happen? Uh, uh, we, we might be overstepping here. Perhaps. 
I'm just saying, if the second arc of New Adventures involved Roberto's mustache as a plot point, what I if certainly... what if Aim developed some kind of like super science mustache for him? Oh no, I'm just imagining Modok with a really impressive mustache. That's Modok easy to doesn't do. deserve a Magnum PI mustache, Miles. Oh, that's true. He's kind of a jerk. As I think Bobby clearly established in his inner monologue earlier. Magnum P.I. hood, the ability to look upon Magnum P.I. as a peer, is something that must be earned through virtue. It's right above lawful good. It's just Magnum P.I. Yeah. I like this plan. Yeah. All right, next D&D campaign, I'm going to aspire to that alignment. So anyway, the new mutants are appropriately pretty horrified, although they're used to Bobby kind of making grand dramatic gestures. So they're like, well, that sucks, but he'll probably be back, maybe. And one of them is like, no, this isn't okay. That being the best kid Warlock. Right, because Warlock has strong feelings and correct feelings about friendship. Magneto and Cindy goes to enact reparation of harm. Other friends go to contemplate. Query, is friend Bobby permitted to leave while misunderstood and unforgiven? Alarm, dismay, unacceptable, unacceptable. All friends must remain together to form a harmonious unit despite differences. Is this not the nature of friendship state? Warlock is the best and I love him so much. Warlock is the best kid and the best friend. And Warlock is also the perfect foil for Bobby. Warlock decides at this point that he is going to go fly off and find Bobby, that probably Bobby has run off to Manhattan because it's the nearest metropolitan area. And so he turns into an adorable tiny propeller plane to fly after Bobby. But I want to talk for a sec about Warlock and Bobby as mutual foils and the decision to have these be the two established characters who come into the series. Yeah, because normally when we see Warlock with anybody, it's Cypher, like almost all the time. Right. And Warlock and Bobby aren't really that close. And Bobby is obviously sort of front and center. I mean, Warlock is in general kind of an ideal foil because his sense of what it means to be a person and what's situation appropriate is almost always and almost entirely derived from just mirroring whoever he's around. And so when he's around somebody who takes everything very seriously and uh, feels things very intensely, like Bobby, Warlock is right there to back Bobby up on that, to reinforce that reality. Warlock is also a great bridge between Bobby and the rest of the Fallen Angels because the Fallen Angels are deep weird. We're going to get into this in a minute, but the makeup of the team is deeply bizarre, and Bobby is someone who can be a little bit rigid about structure and the way things are supposed to be and roles people are supposed to play. Warlock, on the other hand, just kind of takes things at face value and runs with them. And so having him as a conduit between those, as someone who can navigate both those worlds and reconcile them without even really having to, because obviously this is just the way things are for him, works really well and gives Bobby a little bit less to push back against. Totally. And so, yeah, Bobby is wandering around New York, and this is where we meet a couple more of the fallen angels, of the characters that are going to be a part of this team as it comes together. The first one of those is Chance. Chance is a character specific to this series, which is unfortunate because I love her and I want her to come back. Chance is a Korean immigrant. She is an avid and inveterate tomboy. She has run away from Reverend Park of the Glorification Church, which is basically a semi-cult that helps immigrants get into the country and then exploits them horribly for cheap labor. I get the impression that this is based off of something real, like it seems a little bit too specific and on the nose not to be, but I'm not sure what. Right. So I'm sure somebody who was older than we were during this time or a better student of American and or Korean history could probably tell us. Please jump into the comments and do so. Now, Chance gets into a fight very quickly with some muggers and Bobby jumps in and tries to intercede, but his powers fail him and just as they do, a doorway appears and Ariel, who's another one of the fallen angels, beckons Chance away. Chance runs and ditches Bobby, leaving him alone to face, you know, the folks he's fighting. So Ariel. Ariel is a weird character and I kind of love her a lot. For one thing, she is glam 
as fuck. She is. She makes skids look downright dowdy. She really does. She's got like, you know, all these sparkles and her hair is all weird and spiky and she has these giant sunglasses and these pastel bathing suit things and bangles. And in fact, I think it would be correct to say that Ariel's fashion sense is literally out of this world. Ariel is an alien. She's from a world called Coconut Grove. Yeah. And she does have a power, although she's quick to repeatedly point out it doesn't make her a mutant. She's actually got multiple powers, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Her main power, and this is one that's common to all members of her species, is teleportation between doors. She can open any door to any other doorway. Yeah, it's basically a wormhole kind of technology, but she has to have a door or else it doesn't work. Right, and she's also some degree of descendant of, I believe, Shakespeare's Ariel from The Tempest, she points out, who was imprisoned by virtue of being stuck in a doorless prison. So that's kind of a weird thing. Thanks, Fallen Angels. Also kind of irrelevant. She is also really, really manipulative. People do what she wants them to do and really radically rethink their own stances around her. And this is not presented as a superpower initially. It's supposed to be a twist, but it's so evident to me from the very beginning that it is. Someone will say something and she'll say, but don't you think? And they'll be like, oh, yes, I do actually think that. Oh, yeah. And it's actually... It's really, really clear what's going on. It's also really funny when she does it, especially when she manipulates people like uh, later on the Vanisher. Right. So Ariel shows up. She and Chance teleport the hell out of there, leaving Bobby to his fate. Fortunately, Bobby's got a friend who's been flying in to find him. Warlock rescues him. Now, they're stuck on the streets of Manhattan and they're not sure what to do. Warlock can eat out of trash cans. Warlock can eat trash cans. Warlock can basically eat anything. He can't eat trash cans, technically. They're made of metal. Well, wooden trash cans. Those exist. Can he he eat plastic? Plastic is derived from organic matter. I'm not sure. Huh. I feel like this would be a listener question that we would have to bullshit some answer to. Yeah, I, I, I think that's never really explored at length. Warlock kind of has whatever we need them to be powers a lot of the time. So Warlock points out, you know, because Bobby has said, well, I'm not a hero. Obviously, I'm a villain. That's all that's left to me. That is the only fate I can possibly aspire to. And Warlock's like, well, if you're a villain, why don't you just steal some food? Again, that thing with Warlock just reinforcing Bobby's reality, like exactly that right here. Unfortunately for both of them, Bobby totally sucks at crime. Yeah, the first place he tries to rob, he just goes in a random door and it's a church and the priest is like, hey, let me help you. And he's like, oh, God, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. And runs directly out. So as all this is going on, as Bobby is left to the mean streets of New York City with his teenager robot friend, you know, his absence hasn't gone unnoticed. And Magneto, he was concerned from the start because, you know, report cards were coming up. He didn't really know how to do administrative stuff. And so he'd already been in touch with Moira McTaggart, Professor Xavier's Scottish geneticist colleague. With Roberto and Warlock having vanished, Magneto really, really needs some help. So Moira comes over, but she doesn't come alone. She also brings her old lab assistant, who first premiered in a giant-sized Fantastic Four issue, Multiple Man. Right. Multiple Man is Jamie Madrox, and his deal is basically what it says on the tin. He duplicates himself in response to impact. So knock him on the back of the head and you get four Jamies. Right. Well, typically two Jamies. It varies. Yes. Now, Jamie Madrox, obviously he becomes a much bigger character later. He's effectively the main character of Peter David's most recent X-Factor run. And he's interesting and fascinating. And this is really the first time he gets that much of a personality. He's appeared before, but never really in any sort of detail. Yeah, like he shows up and brings Moira the phone and or gets knocked out at various points in Muir Island stories. But this is really the first time he gets to be much of anyone. And in fact, multiple anyone's. And what interests me here is that a lot of the time, you know, for characters who have been around for decades, the first time you see them, their personalities are just a couple of traits and they haven't really developed into the characters they will later be. But Madrox really kind of emerges fully formed. I mean, this is the Jamie Madrox that we're going to be reading 20 and 30 years after the series came out. Absolutely. 
Now, the other person Moira brings with her is a character that we've seen a couple of times before as well, that being Teresa Rourke, also Teresa Cassidy, Siren. She's the daughter of Banshee. And she has the same power set. She was raised partly by Black Tom Cassidy, Sean Cassidy's evil cousin. He's got a shillelagh. Yes, I got to say shillelagh. He has a shillelagh. He does. He has a shillelagh. He is crime bros for life with Juggernaut, as you may recall. But now she is on the side of the angels, and she's basically been hanging out on Muir Island, providing the requisite really, really dubiously written phonetic Irish accent, which persists into this series. Yes, it does. So yeah, Moira and Jamie and Teresa and Jamie and Jamie and Jamie and Jamie and Jamie head out to the States to help out. And very quickly, Jamie and Teresa are sent to go find the missing teenagers, to go find Bobby and Warlock. Now, Jamie finds Bobby and Warlock, but at the same time, so does somebody else. And that is a kid named Gomi. We saw Gomi briefly and unnamed during Bobby's brief, ill-fated brush with a life of crime, and who now is here to recruit Warlock and Sunspot into a group called the Fallen Angels. Now, the Fallen Angels are a group of outcasts and misfits and petty thieves and kids who have just given up that are nominally run by the old X-Men villain, The Vanisher. Right. The Vanisher, as you may recall, was a Silver Age X-Men villain. The last time we saw him was actually, although it wasn't named, in conjunction with a group that will turn out to have been the Fallen Angels. This is the gang of thieves that Boom Boom was running around with before she joined X-Factor. Exactly. And so the Vanisher in this, I gotta say, this is my favorite incarnation of the Vanisher ever. Sort of as a reluctant Fagin? Basically. So yeah, he's got this like leader of a gang of thieves, but it's clear he's really terrible at it. And it's clear immediately that Ariel is pulling the strings and he's just sort of a figurehead. Also, he's got this like lounge lizard chic style going on that is terrible and I love. Yeah. So the whole premise of Beat Street, that's their clubhouse and the Fallen Angels, as Ariel puts it, all of us misfits who knew we weren't going to make it as heroes or maybe didn't think it was worth it to even try. So these are the kids who have fallen off the fringes of superhero books, and we'll be seeing even more of that when another member joins the team. But who have we got so far? Okay, so we know the Vanisher from before. We've already met Chance and Ariel, and we have now Bobby, Warlock, and one of the Madrox stoops that came through the door with them. And then there's Gomi and Gomi's two friends. Now, Gomi is the kid who technically recruited Warlock and Sunspot to the team. Gomi is a human who has been cybernetically enhanced to give him really rough telekinesis. Gomi's backstory is amazing. All right, so let me see if I can sum this up very quickly. So Gomi's cousin and a friend of his were members of the Marvel Girl fan club. I think they were maybe the only members, and they were super, super creepy about it. And they were also the only people in the Marvel Universe who worked out that Phoenix was actually Marvel Girl. Now, they were upset by this because they felt that Marvel Girl had been ruined. I kind of wonder if this was some commentary on fan reaction at the I time. I feel like it has to have yeah. been. And so they're like, well, I know what we'll do. We'll find a beautiful girl, and we'll give her Marvel Girl's powers and make our own Marvel Girl. Because they were creepy. And they decided that they were going to experiment on their young cousin, Gomi, who was their lab assistant for the summer. However, before this, they had two prior test subjects, and these are Gomi's sidekicks whom he's adopted. These are Bill and Don, and Bill and Don are the best characters in Fallen Angels, and I love them dearly. Bill and Don are lobsters. Don is a mutant lobster. He's blue. Yes, that is his mutation. He's got a blue carapace. They are lobsters who have been cybernetically enhanced to be extra smart and strong and tough and to not need water. I don't know what the goal of this experiment was, but I'm really glad it happened. 
Right. And Bill and Don can also communicate, at least with Gomi. And I get the impression with everyone else, they don't speak in words, but they get little speech balloons with basically emoji. Yeah, they kind of do speak in emoji back in 1987. It's like if Artie from X Factor were a lot less articulate. Yeah, I mean, they're lobsters. They have strong lobster feelings. And Bill and Don are amazing and ferocious. And they are Gomi's stalwart sidekicks. And they're kind of fallen angels in a nutshell for me. Like, they are weird and they're intensely wonderful and bizarre. And you kind of have to take a lot as red. But once you do, they're utterly delightful. Yeah, so there was Gomi. He was being experimented on by his cousin and his buddy, and they managed to kind of give him telekinesis. Right, but it's basically a super blunt instrument. He can just create these very sort of semi-directed, straightforward telekinetic blasts. Yeah, and so eventually he managed to escape from his cousins, or rather was abandoned by them, with Bill and Don, and was taken in by the Vanisher to join his gang of thieves. So that's the team we've got now. In short order, they swoop Boom Boom up from the pages of X-Factor number 17. We discussed this in episode 75. You can go back if you want to hear more about the context there, which is where we also learned that Fallen Angels was the crew she was running with before she joined X-Factor. And they grab Siren and the last remaining Jamie dupe, which might be the original, actually, from dinner before heading off to recruit the last two members. Right. Now, the last two members, I think, are where this series goes from weird to hella weird. Well, I mean, there were Bill and Don. Right. There were Bill and Don, but now there are Moon Boy and Devil freaking Dinosaur. Oh, hell yes. Okay. So Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur. They were in a comic that was created in the late 70s by Jack Kirby. It only ran for nine issues, but it was really well remembered. Nine glorious issues. Now, we've talked a lot about Jack Kirby as sort of the king of cosmic Marvel. What Jack Kirby was also the unassailable monarch of was giant fucking monsters. Oh, yeah. My father actually had the uh, early Silver Age issues from Marvel, like Fantastic Four number one and stuff. So he could have retired and I could have pre-retired if he hadn't cut the monsters out and taped them to his wall. But I can't blame him for doing so because those are awesome monsters. There's a great modern homage series to Kirby monsters called Doris Danger by uh, Chris Wisnia, which is really, really, really fun. Yes, by the way, which I it highly totally recommend. is. So, yeah. The Fallen Angels, Ariel has convinced them that they need to go chill out in this new place, which turns out to be the Valley of the Flame. Now, this is the thing we mentioned in the cold open, which was originally supposed to be Earth's prehistory, but is here in this series defined as either an alternate universe or just a different planet or something, but not, you know, Earth 616. It's got its own multiversal designation. So regardless whether it's Earth or another planet, it's somewhere else in the multiverse, which actually raises an interesting question. This never gets developed further. But I mean, if this is in fact somewhere else in the multiverse, then Ariel's door powers aren't just about teleporting through space. They're about teleporting between dimensions. I think so, although I believe Dinosaur World, which is the name name of this place. Such a good name. Yes. It's just what it says on the tin. Right. I think that it being defined as a different parallel universe, that wasn't until later. So I suspect Ariel wasn't intended to be able to do that now. But maybe we're getting a little too deep even for us. Yeah, there is a Devil Dinosaur series, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl, which is going to be, I think, coming out of Secret Wars, which I'm really excited about. It's Amy Reader and Brandon Montclair, and I don't remember who else, but it looks like an amazing team, and basically everything those two do is perfect. So. Oh yeah, it's going to be great. But yeah, so the Fallen Angels find themselves in this dinosaur world, and quickly, you know, as you would expect, find dinosaurs, and have to fight them. And so there's dinosaur fighting, and there's everyone flirting with each other. At this point, Boom Boom has a gigantic crush on Multiple Man, which and is And totally... Multiple Man's got a thing for Siren, and Gomi's got a thing for Siren, and there are a bunch of teenagers running around doing teenager stuff, which means that everyone's got a crush on someone, as the new mutants have taught us. Yes, I think Roberto has a crush on Roberto. Roberto has a crush on Magnum P.I., dude. Come on. Ah, good point. Okay, so we have teenager hijinks, we have dinosaurs, we have old Silver Age Jack Kirby characters coming up, and we have a couple of angry lobsters who have a super nerdy best friend with a bizarre origin story that may be commentary on the state of fandom in the 70s and 80s. 
there's nothing wrong with what's happening here. The fallen angels. The fallen angels, ladies and gentlemen. But we were talking about Moonboy and Devil Dinosaur. Right, okay. So yeah, they were from this Jack Kirby comic. I love the backstory here. I'll talk about it really concisely. So Moonboy was one of the small folk tribe here in Dinosaur World. And they were at war with the killer folk. Guess who the good guys are in this scenario and guess who the bad guys are. Right. Hint, Um, it's exactly what you expect. And so this family of dinosaurs is being attacked by the killer folk and he manages to rescue one of the baby dinosaurs, but not before the baby dinosaur is set on fire by the killer folk. Now he's okay, the dinosaur is, but he uh, turns red from being set on fire and stays red forever. You know, as is scientifically understandable. And that's basically his mutation. That and he's super smart. He's got an evil clone in Next Wave, but Next Wave isn't exactly continuity, so we're going to just gloss over that. He actually has an evil clone who has eaten the clone Moon Boy, which is really sad and fucked up. Yes, although Marvel has gone back and forth on whether or not Next Wave is canon, I choose to believe it is. I, oh god, I feel like if we go there, we're kind of opening Pandora's box. Yeah, I suppose so. So, let's stick with General Devil Dinosaur. Now, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy can communicate with one another, but neither of them speaks the language of the rest of the fallen angels. So, we get, you know, long sequences of conversations where neither side has any idea what the other is saying, which is hilarious because Moon Boy is incredibly poetic and eloquent and super intelligent. Devil Dinosaur doesn't really talk. Devil Dinosaur is a taciturn fella. Yes. Or lady. Devil Dinosaur's gender is in question, but Devil Dinosaur seems to prefer, or at least is indicated by Moon Boy to prefer male pronouns, so that's what we're going to stick with on this podcast. So, for example, as Moon Boy describes Boom Boom, Truly, the wrath and power of she who is like a living fire mountain are beyond belief. What happens to displease her? Uh, sorry, kid, but all I'm getting from you is oop-ack, responds the Vanisher. Which I love. And um, yeah, like, Moonboy refers to the Vanisher as him who lacks hair but yells much and hides often. Moonboy is amazing. Moonboy reminds me of Warlock in that he is just remarkably sanguine about getting dropped into a time period and technology level that he's had no previous contact with. He's just like, yep, we're gonna run with it. It's cool. I'm just gonna, you know... Name things descriptively because that's what I've got to work with, and I'm sure these are good friends. I think he's just happy to be in a comic again after being gone for like almost 10 years. Yeah, it would have been about eight years because they were in Godzilla in 1979. Well, there you go. Godzilla briefly went to Dinosaur World and they they teamed up, and then there was a gag where back on Earth someone was making a Godzilla-style devil dinosaur movie. That's beautiful. That the thing was involved in briefly. Oh, that's great. I, I love comics, you guys. I love comics so much. So, okay, so we have all the team assembled at this point. And now Ariel's been the one who's been responsible for suggesting picking everyone up or convincing the Vanisher that he wants to pick everyone up. And it's becoming more and more evident that what she's specifically after, the people she wants on the team and she's going out of her way to recruit and getting chance to help her recruit, are mutants. Which is a problem when everyone's powers start to go haywire. Right. And this has happened a little bit here and there. People's powers will either be stronger than they would have expected suddenly, or they'll just, like, drop out entirely. And things are going weird in general. Jamie's feeling like something's off, like maybe he's missing one of his duplicates, but he can't figure out where he lost them. And no one feels bad about stealing. Jamie and Siren comment on this, that they're doing stuff they never thought they would be, and they're not even questioning the morality of it. They haven't even bothered trying to get Warlock and Sunspot back to headquarters, even though that's what they were sent off to do. They're just sort of going along with everything. Ariel and Chance are just kind of total mean girls. Like, the extent to which screwed up middle school girl social dynamics get played out in this series and the degree of accuracy, especially once Boom Boom is involved, is kind of almost a little bit painful to read. But man, Joe Duffy writes it perfectly. She has such a good grasp of all of these characters. Because, I mean, we've seen, you know, about half of them before. And she writes them very consistently, but also in novel ways. Like, she does advance their character growth. I, I wish she'd done more. I think she's out of the biz these days. But she is, damn, yeah. I've enjoyed and what And it's she's a done. shame. God, you know what this feels like to me? What this sort of feels like almost the spiritual predecessor to? Hmm. Runaways. 
You know, I can totally see that. Dinosaur friends and all. You're absolutely right. Old lace. Yeah, but it's got that kind of intense weirdo camaraderie. It's obviously coming from a very, very different premise. But in spirit, God, I really wish Joe Duffy were still writing comics because she was fantastic. I mean, she's still alive as far as I know, just not working in the comics industry, which is a thing that happens. It does. It's true. So, yeah, all this is going on. And the group goes out to steal some food because, remember, they're totally thieves. And as they're out there, Gomi and Boom Boom run into Jamie Madrox, but like a different Jamie Madrox. Now, this is a Jamie Madrox who split off from the main Jamie, or what as far as we know is the main Jamie. Brief aside, the Jamie who's running around with the Fallen Angels, the Jamie who we believe is Jamie Madrox Prime for like the next 10 years is actually a duplicate. We covered this way back in the cold open to episode 10. Yeah. But we're not going to find that out. This Jamie Madrox is going to live and die and be on teams and die of the legacy virus. And then the actual Jamie Madrox is going to pop up a while after that. But as far as we know for now, this is Jamie Prime. The Jamie that Gomi and Boom Boom run into is a dupe. And he's a dupe who split off from Jamie back when he and Siren were first going out to look for Warlock and Sunspot when they just left the Xavier Mansion. And this dupe decided after, you know, helping a woman pick up her baggage and go to her taxi that, you know what? I really don't want to be reabsorbed. I'm going to lose my individuality. My individual experiences and memories will kind of be diluted when I go back into, you know, the other group of Jamies and become one person again. I've got to get the hell out of here. Later on, he will turn out to actually be a mutant mutant. Right, what? yeah. He's a dupe that has a mutation separate from the original Jamie Madrox's mutation. Now, we should also clarify here that in this continuity, there is no Jamie Prime. They're all equal Jamies, and there's no, like, main one. Later on, that will uh, be described as not being the case, which confused me because my main Jamie Madrox knowledge came from Fallen Angels. But for right now, all Jamies are equal. So there's the one that's been going around with the Fallen Angels, and the one that split off and decided to not come back, and they're sort of co-Jamies. Yeah, the way Jamie Madrox's powers are written over time is, as with most X-Men characters, wildly inconsistent. We're going to go into that in much more detail, probably about five or six years from now when we finally get to another series he shows Eventually. up in. For now, though, this particular Jamie, the one they've just run into, is in big trouble because he's just been run over by a cyclist and he is in bad shape. Now, if the other Jamie reabsorbed him, his injuries would basically be redistributed, but he is not down for that. And in the chaos, the other team members run out to see what's going on and tragedy strikes. Tragedy seriously strikes. Okay, so we've been introduced to Don and Bill, the true heroes of the Marvel Universe, the respectively blue and green lobsters. Now, Don and Bill are very intelligent and they're very, very tough. But it's been established previously that they're also lobsters. They're very small and this size and their interaction on a regular basis with forces far greater than themselves involves a certain degree of fundamental peril. Peril that comes to a head when, in his rush to find out what's wrong, Devil Dinosaur steps on and crushes Don. A moment of silence, please, for the dear departed mutant Don. Poor, poor Don. We hardly knew him. We hardly knew him. Now, we did know him enough at this point for it to be super tragic when he dies. Like, Gomi was best friends with these lobsters. They were awesome. They were angry all the time, as lobsters should be. When I read this when I was a kid, I mean, I'd seen characters die in comics all the time, you know, whatever. But with this, it's just, it was just so senseless, and it legitimately, like, disturbed and kind of traumatized me when Don got stepped on by Devil Dinosaur. It also really traumatizes the team. I mean, one of the things that makes Don's death have as much impact as it does is that it has that much impact in the book. This is the major conflict of fallen angels right here is the untimely death of Don. This dominates the next several issues. Right. And like Moonboy and Devil Dinosaur feel super shitty about this, of course. And Moonboy tries to talk to Bobby about it. I mean, they can't understand each other, but he tries anyway. Well, Moonboy 
indicates somehow to Bobby that he needs Bobby to comfort Devil Dinosaur. And Bobby and Siren have been trying to reassure Gomi that clearly if there's an afterlife, Don is in heaven. There's a conversation about the relationship of sentient lobsters to Catholic orthodoxy because this is the most amazing comic book series ever made. It totally is. But Bobby goes off to comfort Devil Dinosaur and sees an immediate point of overlap between himself and Devil Dinosaur and the circumstances that led Bobby to join the fallen angels. My crime was the worst of the two, for what he did was a true accident, while I followed the promptings of my temper, and I ran away while Devil Dinosaur came back here. He is my superior in more than size, for he will take responsibility for what he has done and face the consequences as only a truly mature dinosaur could. As only a truly mature dinosaur could. Sometimes you just see a partial sentence and you know that life is never going to get better than right now. Well, you know who life isn't so great for right now? X-Factor? Well, obviously. I mean, water is wet, ice cream is delicious. But no, Bill the Lobster, bereft of his other half, bereft of his partner in lobstery crime, Bill is out for revenge, and Bill tries his best to take down Devil Dinosaur and fails terribly because Devil Dinosaur is a giant dinosaur, and Bill is basically just a lobster. I mean, he's a really tough lobster. But he is a lobster. But then everything goes super weird. Everyone's powers knock out. And for some characters, it's obvious what's going on here. So, for instance, Madrox reabsorbs all of his duplicates, except for the sort of weird mutant duplicate who's hanging around with broken ribs and sort of sulking in the corner because he doesn't want to be part of the unit. Sunspot doesn't have his super strength. But there are two characters whose mutations are maybe a little bit less obvious, and those effects are maybe, I think, even more disturbing. What really weirds me out is Warlock, all of a sudden, turns into a super jerk, like a super murderous jerk. He becomes really angry and uh, actually tries to hurt some of the other fallen angels. Remember much, much earlier when we were talking about Warlock's mutation and how it's literally compassion? Yeah, this is what happens when you switch off his mutant powers. He gives no fucks. Right. And the other character who's kind of surprising, uh, whose behavior changes, is Ariel. Right. No one is listening to her. She can't convince people to do what she wants anymore. And I think this is supposed to be a big revelation, but again, her powers have been super obvious from the start, so it's kind of not. Anyway, everyone is thrown into chaos by the death of Don, and Ariel makes an executive decision. She decides that it is time for them to go to Coconut Grove, her home planet. Exactly. So the Coconut Grove, it certainly is a thing. Okay, Coconut Grove is glam, cartoon, evil South Beach. And I'm assuming like the entire planet's that way. So everyone's really glittery and wearing bright colors and spandex and giant like rhinestones. Yeah, Elton John. It's basically the the Elton John planet. I think so. Ariel actually looks very normal for a citizen of the Coconut Grove. And they take everyone off for glam makeovers to Bobby and Boom Boom's joy and Chance's horror. And I totally feel Chance on this. Ariel rescues Chance from the makeover. And then we find out what Ariel's plot was. So the people of Coconut Grove don't mutate. They have lost their ability to evolve and they're doomed as a species. And so basically, Unipar, who's the leader of the Coconut Grove, who's this sort of like shady looking used car salesman dude, except very glittery, has sent Ariel off to gather mutants from around the universe and bring them there so they can be studied. And she's gotten chance to team up with her on this under the pretense that they're going to go drop all of these mutants off and then go off and be rich and famous and awesome and have badass thief adventures together. But there's a problem. There's a twist. And that is that it turns out chance is a mutant whose powers have just manifested. You know how the powers of the other kids have been sort of turning on and off, getting way amped up or disappearing? Mm -hmm. That's chance. Her powers are basically double or nothing. She can either amp mutant powers up or shut them down entirely. And so she gets pulled in too. Not only is chance a mutant, but as it turns out, 
so is Ariel. Right. So she's mentioned before that being able to open doors to different places is just something her species can do, but that whole convincing thing, that charm thing that's been very, very heavily foreshadowed, totally a mutant power. Bum bum. So they all get taken away and they get imprisoned. And then we get to the final issue of Fallen Angels, which opens with a very angry lobster on a mission of vengeance. I mean, literally, this issue is basically die hard if John McClane were a super smart lobster. Why was John McClane not a super smart lobster? Oh, man. Yeah, Die Hard came out in 1988, so there's really no excuse. I mean, this issue was November 1987. They could have gone back, you know, subbed in a lobster for Bruce Willis. I mean, I think it would have been just as successful, if not more. I think the series could have kept going, and maybe Die Hard 5 wouldn't have sucked that way. Ho, 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 I have a machine gun. Ho, 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 I have lobster crustacean claws. A machine lobster, lobster gun. But really, like, okay, Bill is the greatest action hero ever. He's he a, is. He's a super pissed off, incredibly tough and strong lobster. And can we talk about lobster rage and how it is my favorite thing in the series? I think that's legitimate. I think it's my it's favorite so thing in amazing. a lot of things. Like, it makes me so sad that Bill was not a breakout star because he really should have been. He should at least have become a ghostwriter. Like, He's Bill, the spirit of vengeance. Yeah. He is. He could. Oh, there are so many things that he could have done. So many stories that we could have told, you know, Bill, Herald of Galactus. Punisher Bill the Lobster. Oh, that's another one that makes a lot of sense given his backstory. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, Dark Phoenix Bill. Or just Robocop Bill. I mean, I mean he's on. basically already Robocop. It's a good point. Robocopster. Oh, I love Bill so much. Yeah. I assume that he is somewhere off with Harvey and Janet and Elsie, the Hydra middle manager, and all of those guys. I, I suspect so. All of the forgotten wonders he's, of he's the side characters. Although, yeah, clearly. Uh-huh. You got a ticket to that gun show, to that claw show? <laughs> These guns have claws? I don't know I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I want him to have a muscle tank. I'm pretty sure in the 90s there were guns that do, in fact, have claws. You're probably... Oh, Bill could have joined X-Force. <gasps> Another but Bill's missed not a opportunity. Mutant. Bill's oh, just true. a cyborg. Don was the mutant. Yeah, Don was blue. Bill's just a normal green lobster. I mean, Storm didn't have powers in the X-Men. Longshot isn't a mutant. Longshot is kind of a mutant. Well, it's arguable. But Storm is a mutant, and Storm had established her place on the team before losing her powers. She is the badassest of the badass. I feel like she would support Bill's membership. I think so. I feel like any reasonable individual would support Bill's membership. I would support Bill's membership in our family, and he's a fictional character and a lobster, so, you know. Mm -hmm. But we digress. But we digress about Bill. True. And so I feel like the digression is justified. But anyway... Back in Coconut Grove, one of the Jamies just gets straight up killed. Oops. Yeah, Unipar shows up and sort of explains the evil plot and has no compassion whatsoever toward Ariel for, you know, the situation that she's in. Unipar is a super jerk, you guys. Right. Uh, Warlock, sometime between the last time their powers knocked out and now, learns to love as a fundamental part of his personality rather than his mutation because he's, you know, still got compassion when their powers all get switched off this time. And that's how it's explained. It's just sort of hand-wavy. It's actually really charming, even if it doesn't make any sense. It's sort of weird that it happens between issues, like that he somehow hadn't learned to love as a fundamental part of himself until now. You know, I mean, Chance's powers were canceling his powers before, and now it's a machine, so I guess it's different somehow. So, anyway, everything is terrible. They all seem super doomed. When Bill bursts in like a spirit of motherfucking vengeance, dragging a guard in each claw and shrugging off laser blasts. God, Bill is amazing. This is seriously like the House (laughs) of Blue Leaves from Kill Bill all over again. No, no, it's Die Hard. Dude, it is 100, 1 million percent Die Hard. (laughs) Bill Hard. So Die Hard with a lobster. Yes, Bill manages to steal the keys from one of the fallen guards and unlock the fallen angels. And at that point, they manage to convince him, hey, I know you want vengeance against 
devil dinosaur for killing your friend, but it was an accident and there were more important things and Don would want you to help everybody. Yeah, and this specifically, Siren says, you know, do it for Don, Bill. Yeah. And Bill does. You can almost hear the music swelling behind him. And so at this point, the angels are free except for one, that being Ariel. And they're left with this young woman who manipulated and betrayed them and almost got them all killed, who's now utterly helpless, betrayed by her own people. But they decide they're going to break her free too. None of them are perfect. They all joined up with the fallen angels, I guess except for Siren and multiple men who just kind of got sucked in because they had screwed up somehow because they were running away from something. So like, ah, you know, screw it. She's one of us. We're going to go ahead and do this. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to save Nakatomi Plaza. And so, you know, there's this big fight they're gearing up for. Bobby and Chance team up, getting past their differences because they've really hated each other the whole time. Madrox's dupe finally agrees to being reabsorbed so he won't be a liability in the big last fight. Yeah, which I kind of feel like they should have focused more on that. I think it should have been portrayed as a little more tragic than it was. Yeah, that's a really big deal. And I really loved the concept of that character and how dedicated he was to it. And that's the one thing in the conclusion of this series that felt really cheap. Agreed. But eventually what happens is Ariel confronts Unipar and along with the augmentation of Chance's powers, augmenting her own Convincey powers, and the Convincey powers inherent to having a giant dinosaur on your side, she convinces Unipar that basically it's not worth it. It's too dangerous. It's too expensive. And based on the fact that Ariel herself has a mutation, apparently the Coconut Grove residents were wrong about mutation being gone in their species. That last one seems like the salient one. I mean, once they figured out that Ariel was a mutant, that should have rendered the entire project moot, because the whole point of it was we've stopped mutating as a species, but oh no, wait, we haven't. It's okay now. But regardless, they all manage to escape. They go back to Beat Street, and they're safe. And at this point, Sunspot decides, after all I've seen, I'm realizing maybe I'm not a villain. Maybe we're all just different shades of gray. Maybe we all have good and bad. And maybe it's time that Warlock and I get back to the new mutants. The rest of the Fallen Angels decide they're going to give it a try on the straight and narrow. Well, Boom Boom is going to head back to X-Factor. And Chance and Ariel are going to try to, you know, actually pay for their next meal and live as upright citizens. Siren and multiple men decide they're going to stick around and help. What happens to Gomi and Bill? Okay. So Gomi and Bill, I thought they were never heard from again, but I looked it up and they do sort of show up later. In one of the comics that came out around the Avengers Initiative storyline, years and years and years and years and years later, where each state in the United States was going to have its own superhero team, Gomi and Bill are listed as potential recruits for the Avengers Initiative. Why would you not recruit Bill if you had the chance to recruit Bill? This was clearly an error on the part of the people in charge of the Avengers Initiative. Maybe they did try and Bill was just like, I work alone. Maybe, except he just had like a little speech bubble with like an angry face in it. A little skull and crossbones. That's his usual angry emoticon. So yeah, that's Fallen Angels. Now, like we said at the beginning, there are some critics who say that this series isn't any good because nothing of consequence happens. Those critics are wrong and we don't like them. Well, and that's the thing. Like, you don't have to have big consequences for a story for it to be a good story. We have a lot of character development. We have a really enjoyable series of events and character interactions. For me, that's absolutely enough. Yeah, Fallen Angels isn't a series where there's one big main conflict and everyone fights and then it's resolved. It's a lot more freewheeling, it's a lot more exploratory, and it's experimental with structure and team makeup in ways that are really, really appealing. If you're a fan of New Mutants in particular, I really recommend this series. It's got a lot of the same kind of experimentalism, a lot of the same kind of just joyful camaraderie. And a lot of the same kind of slightly silly but really heartfelt coming of age. Also, it has Bill and Don, objectively the best characters in the Marvel Universe. What it doesn't have, unfortunately, is a sequel, which is a shame because it was supposed to. Exactly. I didn't know this until we started doing research for this episode, but actually two issues of Fallen Angels 2 were completed. 
These were written once again by Joe Duffy, and the big change was that the art was done by Colleen Duran. And inked by Terry Austin, and you can actually see some of it. Colleen put some of it up on her website, and it's so pretty and so cool, and it would have been amazing. Now, the premise is very strange. It's still, you know, in general, the same deal as this group of outcasts living in Beat Street. But there was a new central character, this guy named Pan. He was an abuse survivor and runaway, and he had the mutant power of controlling animals telepathically. Or at least communicating with them. Yeah. Now, most of the cast was the same, like, except that Siren left at the beginning. Um, apparently, Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur spent a lot of the first two issues just watching MTV. There was a villain named The Broker who was supposed to be the central villain of the series, and he was actually in some other Marvel comics at the time. They were setting him up for Fallen Angels 2, which, of course, never happened. There was another character they were setting up for that, too, who they introduced and didn't do much with. That was a musician named P.J. James, who I believe was first introduced in Marvel Fanfare number 38 in a story that was basically supposed to sort of pipe him into the eventual Fallen Angels 2. Yeah, he was based on Jimmy Page because Colleen Duran was a huge Led Zeppelin fan. Yes. Which is pretty great. So, do we have any good takeaways from this? Fallen Angels is an amazing series. You read it first as a kid. You read it about, you know, the same age as the characters. Yeah, and man, it was one of my favorites when I was a kid, and I am so pleased to find that in my opinion, opinions vary, but in my opinion, it totally holds up. It does. I mean, I read it for the first time in college. How accurately I remembered it and how much of it I remembered really surprised me when I came back to it last week to prepare for this episode. How much I still enjoyed it did, too. Not as a deep continuity dive. Like, I tend to get really into miniseries because of that, because they go into weird places in the multiverse. But just as a really fun story, this is also, honestly, I think a book you could jump into with no previous knowledge of the Marvel Universe and follow along. And those are really rare. They're especially rare now. So, yeah, highly recommended. Oh, we get a lot of questions, actually, about kid-friendly series. And while this one does involve some death, it does involve the death of Donald Lobster, It also involves some remarkably mature and accessible conversation about death. And if you're comfortable reading it with your kid, I think this would be a really, really, really good book for kids, a really good kid-friendly series. All right, I think that's all the time we have for Fallen Angels, but you've got questions. Gustav emailed us to ask, A few of my friends and I like hosting ambitious Halloween parties with stuff like role-playing and scavenger hunting based on a given theme. You're awesome, Gustav, and I want to go to your parties because I'm totally into that. This year, we're psyched to try our hands at a superhero-themed party. I'm going as Doctor Doom and one of my friends will be perfect as Wolverine. Naturally, we have no idea what the 20 or so guests will come as. What we really need now is a kind of frame narrative that can serve as an excuse for having every imaginable hero and or villain, be it Marvel, DC, or other, doing activities together. Of course, it shouldn't be too complex so that non-comic book readers can enjoy it as well. Do you have any ideas of what kind of narrative might work? Naturally, a humorous one is encouraged. Any help is appreciated. Okay, because you're dressing up as Dr. Doom, Gustav, the world is your oyster. The world is your Latveria, or Latveria is your oyster. Well, actually... The whole world is your oyster because right now, Marvel has an event going on called Secret Wars in which Doom has basically become the god emperor of a massive mashup multiverse condensed into one world. This gives you an excuse not only to have a Doom-hosted party, but to have some kind of cross-battle world event where you can have multiple versions even of individual characters. And who's to say you can't cross over the DCU in your version? It's your party, you get to make the universal rules, and obviously you don't have to deal with licensing departments. It gives you a lot more freedom. If you want to go a little bit more traditional, you could go with Secret Wars 1, where again, Doom had a fortress everyone showed up and invaded. I think modern Battleworld is a better place to play with. That said, there's another hook that you could run on too, 
And that is something that we saw originally in Uncanny X-Men number 145 to 147. That is Doom teaming up with Arcade. Now, Doom is the kind of guy who tends to have large, weird groups of superheroes and supervillains over to his castle in Latveria just kind of for the hell of it, for cocktails and possibly death traps. Really, again, you don't need a lot of premise to justify this party or to justify the activities or to justify the range of characters. But the premise of Uncanny X-Men 145 to 147 is Doom actually, as it will turn out much later, a Doombot, but that's really irrelevant for your purposes, teaming up with Arcade and Latveria to kidnap the X-Men and put them through a bunch of different tests in Doom's castle. If you need a premise for party games, for weird, you know, face-offs or anything like that, again, that sets you up pretty nicely. But, you know, as I said before, if you've got Dr. Doom in the mix, you've automatically got a setup to run with. The important part is that you have an entire evening to talk only in a Doom voice, and there's nothing bad about that. All right, so Eric asks us also via email, I was wondering what your opinions are on the parallels between the Doom Patrol and the X-Men. I've seen fans lump both teams together, but the similarities aren't as obvious to me. So I'm going to disclaim by saying that my Doom Patrol knowledge is pretty limited. I've read some, but not it's not nearly as exhaustive as my X-Men experience. Yeah, I've basically just read the Grant Morrison run. Right, which is really good. So the main similarity that I know of is actually the origin. X-Men number one came out three months after the Doom Patrol first appeared in My Greatest Adventure number 80, a DC comic. And actually, the creator, Arnold Drake, of Doom Patrol was convinced that Stan Lee had somehow gotten inside info, maybe from having a friend show up at DC's offices beforehand, and had thus basically created the same team for Marvel just very quickly thereafter. Obviously, this is something that Lee has never admitted to. I don't know if he's ever even really acknowledged it. And both look enough like zeitgeists of the times that it's reasonable to justify either way. We don't have a solid, this is the one true story. But the parallels between the teams are kind of, okay, I'm going to say it, uncanny. Oh, you did that. Uh, Two episodes in a row, man. But yeah, so they're both teams of people with strange powers who are kind of hated and feared and misunderstood by mainstream society. That's kind of taken as red. Well, right. So yeah, if you look at just the basic premise between Silver Age X-Men and Silver Age Doom Patrol, they look pretty similar. Now, they went off in some pretty different directions after that, but even so. Well, Doom Patrol, from my frame of reference, is much, much weirder. But again, I'm mostly familiar with Grant Morrison's run. So stuff like The Brotherhood of Dada and Danny the Street, which are both amazing. Man, Query is my favorite supervillain ever. Her powers are literally anything you haven't thought of. So at one point, she turns people into toilets full of flowers. Like you do. Like you do when you're a Grant Morrison villain. But exactly. Anyway, Doom Patrol tends to be sort of much more self-contained, and X-Men tends to be much more about the character's relationship to the larger world, to the metaphor, and to the characters as a class, as a specific population or part of one. Superficially, they've got a lot in common. Actual content-wise, my impression is less so, but again, that's from a very limited sample. Now, that's it for questions this week. We are a listener-supported podcast, and some of the tiers of Patreon support come with thanks from a range of fictional characters. So I believe I am turning it over this week first to the villain Unipar of Coconut Grove. Take it away, Unipar. Welcome to the Coconut Grove, Terrence O'Sullivan. Oh, it's an honor to have a mutant like yourself here. If people didn't appreciate you at home, those cruel, foolish clods, then you're in for a treat. Here, we appreciate, no, revere mutants. Come with me, come with me, and don't you worry if this next part hurts just a teensy bit, my dear. Oh, Unipar, your approach lacks subtlety and romance. I'll show Andrew McCarthy here just how guests deserve to be treated, and just how gracious a host can be. Come with me, Andrew, freely and of your own will. 
and see what pleasures Castle Sexy Dracula has to offer. Man, that second one gets so much weirder after we actually named our house after it. I guess so, but even so. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be back in the pages of X-Men as Madeline Pryor joins the team. And things get a little... Sinister. Sinister.